session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolaki, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I get into the books, um, just wanted to make a quick announcement about this Friday. We'll be going on... Uh, the Radio Hamra cruise to commemorate the sixth year anniversary of Radio Hamra. And uh, my father and a small group of people, some of whom will be with us this week too, actually went on a cruise this weekend, the same boat, just to uh, also set some things up, but um, to see how things were. And they were very good and fine. And I think there's over 2,500 people there. I know there's some scares uh, because of what people are hearing in the news about different health issues, but it seems we have nothing to worry about so i'm happy to see many of you on friday and if you haven't signed up yet there still might be some space available so call in and uh, join us and we hope to see you there friday this weekend for the radio hamra cruise let me now get to the book so first the book of the week for this week that i'll talk about on monday's show is so you want to talk about race by ijioma oluo so you want to talk about race. Um, I really liked the title, and I think it is uh, an important topic. Obviously, race, racism comes up a lot on this show, but I also know even myself, at times having the conversations can be difficult, or how to have the conversations, what can and can't be said, or how certain things are said, or how to talk to people that might think so differently from you about important issues and i don't know how much of that or what exactly the book addresses but i um, did like that topic and so looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week Uh, tonight's book that i'll talk about is born a crime by trevor noah born a crime stories from a south african childhood by trevor noah who is a south african comedian now in the u.s very well known for hosting The Daily Show, which is one of my favorite shows, one that I uh, watch uh, every episode of. And I've always thought he's very funny, very smart. Um, And in this book, after reading it, it makes me like him even more, which tends to be the case. The more we know someone and understand them and hear about their life, usually we like them more. Um, Also, the book was very interesting. I did not know a lot of Um, the things that happened in his life, but also about sharing about South Africa and how things were and are there uh, and seeing all the hardships that he has endured in his life as well all makes me like him even more as a person and as a comedian. Um, Also, at times, you can see how it probably has affected him as a comedian, the things he has experienced. So first and foremost, highly recommend the book uh, Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. I actually spoke with someone who said uh, the audiobook is even funnier because he narrates it or he's doing the voice himself. But then there's also lots of 
accents and different languages throughout the book, and apparently he does all of them. So I didn't do the audiobook for all the books I've done. For the books of the week, I've had a physical copy in my hands, um, but that can be an interesting one for also people to to hear as well. So uh, even starting with the title of a book, the book, Born a Crime, I remember I always heard that that was the title of his book. It's been out for a few years, but I didn't really know why. Uh, and quickly you find out why um, that is, because during the time that he was born, and so his father was white, Swiss-German, and his mother uh, is black, and it was illegal for whites and blacks or for people from different races to have sex back then. Uh, and actually, the beginning of the book starts with the Immorality Act of 1927, which says to prohibit illicit carnal intercourse between Europeans and natives and other acts in relation thereto. And so essentially, the, it was illegal to have sex with someone from a different race. So in that way, he was born a crime because he was essentially proof of their crime, of, of doing this, of breaking this law of sex between races and that sounds so backwards and he's not that old he's only 30 something years old uh, and apartheid i think f ended five when he was five years old um but it's shocking to hear that that was the case in the united states too i think maybe 30 40 years ago maybe 50 years ago in some states uh, interracial marriage was um, illegal i think they call it miscegenation um and so we see that in South Africa, where, of course, race and racism was very strong and apartheid was this very powerful um, force of racism that really hurt so many lives. And you feel that throughout the book, uh, we see that Trevor Noah himself was in that way born a crime because he was evidence of this criminal act that was done by his mother and father. And so he explained, and I, I think I want to make sure I explain it right. I probably will get it a little bit wrong. Uh, but when we usually say colored people, or you don't really say colored people in the United States anymore, but before it referred to African-Americans, people um, who are, we would say, black. But you don't really use that term anymore. But in South Africa, he explains that um, there's black, there's white, and then colored actually means those who are kind of a mix of black and white. And it's okay to be colored, I guess, if it's going back generations, but it was not okay to be a mixed race child. And so that's uh, what he was. And so he shares uh, what sound like crazy stories that he would be with his mom and she wouldn't, she would pretend like he wasn't her son because it would be wrong for this dark-skinned woman to have this light-skinned boy. And so she would hire uh, essentially nannies or people to take care of him that were colored people, light-skinned like himself. And really, they would essentially pretend like they were um, his mom, which sounds crazy. Also, because of this, he didn't see his father very much. Usually, he says, was indoors. They couldn't really be public much because it could create problems. And even then, he said when they were public, oftentimes his father would walk on the other side of the street because it was not okay for them to be a family. Their family was technically not legal in that way. Uh, they never got married, his mother and father, either, which I guess probably was not legal or a possibility, but they didn't want to, I think. Um, and he does share the story of one time he saw his dad and he was screaming, Daddy, Daddy. He was maybe, I think, three years old. And his daddy was running away from him because he couldn't acknowledge him as his son or they thought that could create some problems or some trouble. So you see him 
going away from him and he thought it was a game and he kept doing that. Uh, but it's quite crazy to think of these things that uh, a son could be, it's, it could be not okay for him to even acknowledge his mother and father or for them to acknowledge him as their child. So the title of the book is so much more meaningful to me now. Um, I didn't understand what that was until I, I read the book and, and you see that. And so it, he shares the story, one of the biggest figures in his life, or probably the biggest one really you see in this book, is his mother, who was a very powerful woman who um, he talks about how she never wanted to be seen or feel like a victim and would teach that to Trevor as well. Um, very intense. She was a strict disciplinarian, and he shares about a lot of the times where she would hit him. Uh, here we would call it a beating. There he says they call it a hiding. Um, I think to me it sounds more like it's because they're hitting the hide off of you or your hide is like your skin. But so he would have a lot of these hidings from his mom and he shares that throughout the book. Um, but he does say he feels like it was coming from a place of love. Now, of course, I think these things are complicated and very often we want to see what happened to us in a positive way that it was the right way. Um, you do feel very strongly that his mom loves him and is trying to protect him and even she does share that she would hit him because she wanted to teach him um, to not do the bad things because out there he said the, the, the world doesn't love you if the police is trying to hurt you or does is going to hit you it's to kill you I'm doing it to try to teach you um, although it's interesting because at one part of the book I remember he said something like she would do this to try to teach me to stop doing those things but it never stopped me from doing them and that's Essentially, the problem with this type of punishment when it comes to trying to discipline or teach is that it just teaches you to be afraid or try to avoid punishment, but usually doesn't teach you uh, the concept that's trying to get uh, come across. But nonetheless, clearly his mom um, loved him very much and was a huge influence in his life. And you can see her throughout the book uh, and how much she was always there in different ways. There were times where he was more away from her as he got older um, but you can see her presence and she's really in that way. Of course, he's the, the narrator and telling his life story, but he really, it's clear that she's that main character, that most important uh, person in the book. But he, he shares lots of different, very powerful messages throughout the book. So it's very funny. It's obviously autobiographical and telling his life story, but he makes a lot of really good points about different topics such as racism and how in some ways silly it is when you see how segregated people were or how actually um, he, he was talking about the whites were trying to make the different black, black groups against each other in a way, in a kind of like a divide and conquer, or at least if you keep them disunified, they won't be able to come together and overpower them. Because I think as he says um, at that time, the, the blacks outnumbered the whites five to one, but still they were very uh, disunited. There was no unity there. So there's a lot of interesting points about um, race, racism. Uh, it's always interesting to hear about a place that is going through something very different from what you get to experience and seeing how real it is. And I think um, I probably will add more memoirs and autobiographies uh, to my list of books because I think you, you see a different perspective when you hear about someone's life experience in a certain time, in a certain context, in a certain society that you don't just get from reading about the different laws and and things from a historical type of a way. So that was interesting to me to hear about his experience, even being colored, again, by, by colored, how they refer to it there, of between light and dark skin. 
um, and how he didn't ever feel like he quite belonged anywhere. He wasn't quite black enough. He wasn't quite white enough. Um, and, and there's different ways he actually talks about becoming a chameleon. And he became very good at interacting with uh, different people in different groups and finding out how to connect with them. And one way was through language. He learned a bit of many different languages. I think he says there's about 12 different languages that are national languages in South Africa. So he learned how to talk to different people. And even when I read that part about becoming the chameleon, it made sense with becoming a comedian, knowing how to make people laugh, how to connect to different people, something that he's very good at. But I'm sure that contributed to his development as a comedian, as someone who can make different people laugh. Um, and also, still he's very good. I enjoy the impressions and things he does uh, on The Daily Show. He's very funny. I think he's, it's a definitely something he's good at, so I'm sure it made him good at being able to be that chameleon, to be able to blend in. But of course, when you have that feeling, it's also that you don't belong to any one group completely, and I think you feel that as well, that because of the race and racism that existed... He never got to feel like he belonged to any one group. Um, he shares stories of uh, his mother getting remarried, and that was also very intense, um, to a, a mechanic, and he was abusive. And there was a lot of big lessons he shared in that as well, especially one where people tend to hear stories of a woman in a domestically violent relationship and just think, oh, they blame the victim and think she should just leave or um, maybe she wants it somehow or maybe it's not that bad and how it's not that simple. He shares his mother's story about how difficult it was and how she was caught in this. And even when she would call the police, this was really heartbreaking. The police would respond in a very boys club type of fashion of, oh, you know, these women and how they get and how they can act. Um, even the first time she went to the police station after he hit her the first time, the police said, well, what did you do that made him hit you? So very directly blaming the victim and essentially saying, if your husband hit you, you must have done something wrong. So maybe even he was right to hit you. And so they wouldn't even file a report. And so this happened a few times, which is crazy. And you hear that and it's so sad. And you can see how powerless she must have felt and really in a lot of ways was it's not that simple and even there's a scene uh trevor shares where she he asks his mom why don't you leave and he says if i leave he'll kill us and that's actually something that many women fear and actually it's not just a fear as in they're uh, scared of something that's not real it can be very real and that's why when you're giving advice, even as a therapist, you have to be very aware if you're dealing with domestic violence that you don't just say, okay, run away tomorrow and do this because you don't know if it actually, that could lead to something worse, a worse consequence than they're already going through. And um, true to that narrative, uh, what we see in this story is that she does eventually leave him. Uh, Trevor's mom leaves her, the stepfather and marries someone else. But then years later, that abusive um, husband or now ex-husband that she had did come to try to kill her and does, um, I, I, this is a lot of spoiler alerts. I should have actually maybe said that, but does shoot her. Um, and because of the gun misfiring, actually, maybe she d did not die, but still actually he did shoot one bullet that went into her head. And, uh, by, uh, even the doctor said he doesn't like to say miracle, but it was in a way a miracle. Um, she was actually okay and came out of that alive and without, I think any brain damage. Um, but 
that was quite remarkable and and of course a, a very sad story to see uh, that even when she was trying to get away from him he still came back it was years later i believe she was already remarried again and did that so again you see how um, big of a challenge it is and how complicated all situations are but when we look at domestic violence when it looks so simple from the outside when you hear the the real story and the real accounts of what's going on you see it's much much more complicated um, than you might think from the outside and that's just a reminder of everyone's life from the outside it can be very easy to comment on someone's life and say oh just do this or why aren't they doing that or i would never let myself get in this situation um, but that's really a very simplistic and naive way of looking at life things are much more complicated uh, when you're really in something, then they look from the outside and we think we know what we would do, what we wouldn't do, what we would get into, what we wouldn't get into. Uh, but I think a healthier mindset is to recognize that virtually anything that anyone is going through at any time, you could potentially be there too, given the same circumstances or given different circumstances from your own life. So when you're uh, feeling okay, when you're imagining what it's like, let's say, to be freezing to death, you might think, oh, it's so cold, but really what it's like, you have no idea. So what someone does when they're in that type of circumstance, you might try to predict what you would do, but until you're in it, you won't really know. And so I think it takes some humility to recognize that. Uh, but hearing his story of his mother and how powerful of a woman she was, and yet she was in this type of relationship, it was quite interesting to see. And also, again, a, a good reminder of how we can find ourselves in really tough situations that we would never imagine we would get ourselves into. And so we can have that humility and, and compassion for others and what they're going through. But again, learning more about him and his life, as is generally the case, makes me like him even more. I'm looking forward to going home and watching his show tonight uh, because I just felt more connected to him. You feel like you understand him more. And he was very vulnerable and shares a lot from his life. And it's very funny. You really, you can tell it's him writing. It feels very authentic and genuine. So anyone who's heard him speak or watches his show, you can feel that uh, feeling that it's him sharing his life story. Again, very funny, but very poignant and meaningful as well. So highly recommend this book, Born a Crime by Trevor Noah, Stories from a South African Childhood. All right, let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. back in the first segment talked about trevor noah's book born a crime hilarious and very meaningful uh, book and i'm glad i read it uh, and it made me think of something i've mentioned on the show before but i wanted to talk about tonight which is dumb ideas written or spoken in smart language uh, and so I, I shared the immorality act of 1927 that opens the book and it's written in very formal and legal and proper sounding language but essentially it's saying that people of different races can't have sex with each other um, and it, even it starts with be be it enacted by the king's most excellent majesty the senate and the house of assembly of the union of south africa as follows and then basically says that uh, if a male is having sex with someone of another race they can be imprisoned up to five years and if it's a female up to four years but written in very um, detailed legalese and, and looking very formal, but which makes it look very smart in a way or trying to sound smart, but the idea is very dumb. And so we see this 
throughout history, and of course I'll get to how we still see it and sometimes might not be aware of it, where you'll have the brightest minds of a generation talking about certain ideas that are very dumb, but using their very um, verbal, intelligent ways of writing about it or talking about it that sound smart, but the ideas are very stupid. And you see that throughout history, whether it's coming from men and women being different, the races being different, trying to support different scientific ideas. Uh, you see it all the time that people can say something using smart words, but the ideas are very dumb. And it's something we have to be aware of and mindful of because oftentimes we use the way something is said, the language that is used, how formal it is, who's saying it to determine how good the idea is. So if someone sounds very smart and tells us something, well, then the ideas must be right. Or if something is very formal, then it must be right. Or if it's a law, there must be something good or right about it, even if we don't quite get it. And it's another reminder that no matter what, we always have to think for ourselves. We're oftentimes looking for ways to have someone else do the thinking for us or to not have to rely on ourselves or we're worried or scared we might not know what's right and wrong. So it's nice to have some authority figures um, to tell us what's right or wrong. Sometimes those authority figures can be religious figures who tell us that this is from God, what's right and wrong, and it's very clear, black and white, and there's no room for disagreement. And for some, whether they are religious or aren't, it could be certain scholars or thinkers. And so we think, okay, well, if Einstein said something about love, that's Einstein, so it must be the truth. And I've talked about this before, too, that I'm sure Einstein said lots of really good things about a lot of things. When it comes to science, of course, he was a genius. Um, but when it comes to other things, he's not necessarily uh, the figure we need to look at. And on top of that, even in science, he made mistakes. So even if he said something scientifically, we shouldn't take that as fact. And so, of course, if he says something about anything else, we also should not take that as fact or think, well, it's Einstein, so it's the truth. You might get some inspiration from it. You might think he makes some good points. I'm sure he does. But again, we're not let off the hook to not have to think for ourselves. We always have to think for ourselves. Uh, reminds me of Eric Fromm. He's one of my favorite thinkers, but of course, I'm sure he says things I disagree with. Actually, there are some things I at times disagree with as I read his books, but overall, I really get very inspired by him. Uh, but just wanted to make that point that even if someone is one of our favorite thinkers or someone we admire, they're going to say things that aren't right. Even very often you see these great thinkers, they disagree with themselves at later points in their life. So if you just think because it's from so-and-so, just take it, you might be actually disagreeing with that person in some interesting way because later on they might change their mind. I'll get I'll get back to that point I was going to make about Eric Fromm. Even myself, uh, I was talking about how we're celebrating six years of, of Radio Hamron. I've been very fortunate to get to do this show for six years, and I've seen how my own ideas and thoughts have evolved over this six years. So what I might have said five or six years ago could be very different from something I say now, or at least might have evolved in some ways. So to to even quote myself, I might disagree with myself from, from before. Um, but what I was going to say is that uh, Eric Fromm, I read a book of his to have or to be um, last year. And so having is 
when you just have an idea, even if you're reading a book and you just take that information in, you just want to have it. And that's even, I've mentioned myself, uh, reading a book a week. Of course, I do like the feeling of having read so many books in this amount of time, but I don't want to look at that as well. I just have this knowledge because uh, that really is in a way useless or just to take it all in. But when you have a being type of engagement with a book, even you're having a conversation with the author, you're challenging the points that are being made. You're you're critically thinking about what is being said, not just taking it all in as in, okay, this is some kind of truth that I'm going to swallow whole and now uh, take as a reality. It's more of a engaging type of a process. So we can never be passive um, listeners, passive readers, passive uh, consumers of knowledge. We have to be actively engaged. And it could be a good reminder to see the blunders that great minds of different times have made. Uh, things that are taken for granted become part of, in a way, common sense or common knowledge. And then so people think around those assumptions that are so uh, taken for, as truth that we don't realize their assumptions. And recently I've read two books by Angela Saini, um, Superior and Inferior, looking at uh, how science has, quote-unquote, proven women to be inferior and proven different races being intelligent or superior and inferior in different ways. But again, it was based on those assumptions. And so we see how scientists, because they already assumed, for example, that women were inferior to men, found ways uh, to study the brain or study things to prove that to be true. And these were the greatest thinkers of those times. And if you read some of the things they said, it's laughable now. Um, but back then, they thought they were very smart and people thought they were very smart and took it as truth. And so we have to try to challenge constantly the assumptions that are there because we oftentimes don't realize they're even assumptions. We take them as truth. Women are inferior to men intellectually. Many, unfortunately, still hold on to that. But for hundreds of years when we were studying the brain and studying intelligence because it was so assumed to be true, the great minds were proving it to be true, but it wasn't really actual proof. It was just proving what they already believed. And so you can read, uh, or even when it comes to U.S. history and people who were for slavery and against slavery, there was people that were pro-slavery and they wrote about it in very formal sounding language. It sounded very um, smart as far as the eloquence or the way it was written, but the ideas are very wrong and dumb. They're not smart at all. They don't make sense. Oftentimes what they're even talking about is not clear. We know that race itself is not a clearly defined uh, category um, to describe people, but yet people will talk about in this very real way, trying to prove something about something they can't even clearly define. So we have to be aware of that difference and even to recognize that language, sometimes we think of good language and bad language. Um, for example, I like listening to lots of types of music, but I'll listen to rap music. And of course, sometimes it'll have quote unquote bad language and bad words. And of course, there can be bad ideas in there as well. But oftentimes people will say things that are very vulgar in an immoral sense, but use very formal and pretty sounding language. People have written about how certain groups are inferior to other groups, but in very intellectual and fluffy and beautiful words. And 
if you were to use profanity to them, they might think, oh, you are using bad language, not realizing that when they're dehumanizing another group or talking about a group as less than, that's far worse than any one bad word you can say. So language is an interesting thing where, of course, we've picked some things as bad words and it's understandable. And even as I'm here on the radio now, I have to be aware of not using a select number of words that are not allowed to be aired. Um, so I have to be aware of that. But oftentimes without using any of the quote unquote bad words, you can express something far worse than anything that can be said by one bad word as far as profanity goes. And that's something we'll, you'll see. And as I was saying, the law that he shares in the book about immorality of, of sex between the races is written in very formal sounding language, but it's describing something that morally is very archaic and really dumb. I say that to make that juxtaposition of um, dumb ideas written in strong, uh, smart words, but the ideas are very dumb, but it's written in a very formal way. And so this comes back to what we have to think about now. What are the ideas? What are assumptions? What are things that are out there that in the future will look very dumb because we assumed something to be true? We assumed um, certain things we weren't even aware are assumptions. And that's what makes it so difficult is, of course, when it's very clear we're making assumptions, um, then it's obvious. But the ones that are much harder are the ones we don't realize we're making assumptions about. People didn't think they were making an assumption about inferiority of races or inferiority of women when they were doing that. Unfortunately, again, some people are still holding on to those. And that's why those two books by Angela Saini were so important because we're talking about the return of these types of sciences or how they still exist. Or uh, I think it was last week or the week before talked about Gina Rapone's book about gender in our brains and how there still is so much in the neuroscience research that reflects some assumptions about men and women being different in certain ways. Um, so we have to be aware of what are those assumptions that we're not seeing. And that's why we have to be able to critically think about things, challenge certain things, even think, are there assumptions we're making that I'm not aware of? Being open to hearing from others. It's tough when you um, believe something or have believed something for a long time and for it to be challenged. Just, I think it was yesterday or the day before, I came across an article saying that some of what we know about evolution, there might be more to the story than we no, and it was talking about some things related to DNA and how certain bacteria can do things with DNA that they were advanced for me, even though they tried to say it in more simplified terms. But nonetheless, I remember feeling this uneasiness of, uh-oh, what I thought I knew about evolution might be wrong, but I've thought this for so long. I've even probably talked about it on the air in different ways, or I've talked about it to lots of people. And there was this uneasiness of recognizing Maybe what I thought I knew and took as a truth and felt maybe smart about was actually wrong. And I, I felt something inside myself wanting to initially challenge what I was seeing because it could challenge um, some of my own feeling of smartness or knowing something or being right. And that is always going to be tough for us. And so, of course, when we look at the scientists who write in the, the smart words, oftentimes their careers, their legacies are going to be tied up with these things being right or wrong. So when something they've gotten famous for, let's say a theory gets challenged, that can feel like it's not just challenging the truth or challenging some information. It could feel like it's challenging them at their core. And 
maybe their position, both actually in some kind of job or also in society and in the future. And so people will resist that very strongly. But bringing it back to us ourselves, being mindful and aware and critical in what we hear, realizing that no matter who's doing the talking or the thinking, even as you listen to me now, think about it critically of what do you agree with, what don't you agree with. I'm sure there's assumptions and things in lots of what I say that I'd be very happy to hear from you. What you recognize are my assumptions that I'm not aware of. Um, I'm sure when I hear about it, I'll have a negative reaction too initially, but it's what I will want for my own growth and what we all need to do. So we have to be mindful of smart words that are writing dumb ideas because very often the worst thoughts that have been proclaimed throughout history were written in actually not ugly language, but quite formal and smart sounding language, making them even more specious arguments that make people believe that they're actually true when it's not. And it can go a lot further to convincing people of either holding on to some mistruths or not getting them to see what's actually there. Um, so reading the book and seeing how apartheid was legal, of course, was part of the law, um, but how much of the laws were really backwards in a more uh, immoral sense um, was quite interesting and a, a reminder and a wake-up call that in our own lives, those same things are happening, just they don't seem so obvious to us. And so we have to be critical and think, what am I missing or what are we missing as a society that we think of as a smart idea, um, but it's actually just a dumb idea written in dumb in smart language. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So today started the show talking about Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime. And so uh, he describes his life living in South Africa. And recently I um, was thinking as I read the book uh, a couple weeks ago, by Gina Rapone about men and women's brains and how research has shown or tried to prove how different they are based on lots of assumptions we already had. Uh, but a big theme throughout that book was neuroplasticity, this idea, uh, this concept that um, our brains do change over time, that it's not just this fixed thing, uh, fixed in the skull once you reach, uh, let's say, early adulthood or even before that, um, there's a lot more that happens and changes that occur even throughout the lifespan, but especially uh, realizing that this is happening all throughout life. And to me, it was even more of a reason or support for uh, the theme of trying to give everyone a shot, giving everyone equal resources, because every child, every baby should be given the, ch the chance to develop as much as they can. And a lot of the research has tried to prove in diff prove different uh, differences between the races and things such as intelligence um, by saying there's something innately different or something about the essence of the different races, uh, where really there doesn't seem to be support for that. Uh, but rather, we know that the opportunities, the experiences that we give people, and especially we give babies and children, Will have a huge impact in how they develop. If you expose a child to more verbal interaction, engagement, it will contribute to them developing their verbal skills. So it's not that if you see two kids who are older, 
from different socioeconomic backgrounds that it's something innate in them. It's about the experiences that they've had that have contributed to one excelling verbally versus the other one. And so to me, it's much more evidence that we need to make sure every child and every person gets an equal chance. And unfortunately, a lot of what we've seen throughout history is that certain groups have not been given the same opportunities, the same resources, and then we've measured them using uh, biased standards to begin with, but even if they were likely unbiased in a lot of ways, we'd still find a difference. And that difference would be um, something we would think was about them innately when really it was about the environment they were exposed to. And I, uh, I think uh, last week when I talked about the book by Gina Rapone, I shared the quote that the book started with from Stephen Jay Gould about how it's such a shame, I'm definitely paraphrasing, when we assume that someone's limitations are from something within them and really it's because of something that's happening on the outside when you don't give people uh, the same opportunities and the same chances and then um, you assume it's actually because of their own weakness innately that they have a certain result. And this is something we see in different ways throughout history, something, for example, in the United States that you will see. And, and there's lots of different uh, ways this is reflected. One that comes to my mind is it's a very interesting type of racism um, or discrimination that takes place when, for example, you change the laws, let's say, to make it illegal to discriminate in a certain way or to give people the right to something. So let's say, um, as an Iranian, they would not allow Iranians to have certain jobs. And uh, it was because people thought Iranians were less than other people. So let's say they didn't let us get government jobs because they said we're bad and evil and they're going to corrupt the, the society and so we can't let them work for the government. And everyone... This kind of was a stereotype that existed in, in the society. But then, after lots of protests and uh, provocation, eventually they changed the law and they say, okay, you know what? We no longer will make it illegal for Iranians to have a government job. And everyone celebrates, and that is great. That is progress, and that is very good. But now when we go to apply for the jobs, of course, there's people there that have to make the hiring decisions, and if they still look down upon or think less of Iranians, of us, when we go in for those job interviews, we're less likely to get the jobs. So if they have, let's say, a white candidate and an Iranian candidate, and they're looking at both of us, and let's say we're equal on everything else, they're more likely to take that white candidate because they feel better about him or her and say no to the Iranian one. And then you look at the results and they'll say, look, now it's been legal for Iranians to get these jobs, but you still see that they only make up a very small percentage, much, much less than their actual population in these jobs. It shows that they are just not as good or qualified or as good of a worker as the non-Iranians. And so it could almost be taken as proof of what the assumptions were without realizing that the assumptions were actually creating the evidence you're using as proof in a way, a self-fulfilling um, stereotype uh, is actually a self-fulfilling prejudice is taking place. And that's what we have seen in America as well, especially with uh, black Americans, where laws at times have changed to make things more equal, 
Um, but it doesn't mean that there's equality and actual opportunities. And they've done research, whether it's uh, when it comes to race or also uh, sex. Um, so they've done studies where they send in applications and the only thing they change is the name. And it could be using race or it could be using sex. And we see that it, when it comes to male and female, every, all else being equal, they're more likely to take the male. And when it comes to race, if you make the person African-American, they're less likely to be hired, even if everything else is equal um, as far as the, the resume goes. And so when we look at results, we have to be aware of these types of effects that are also happening. Uh, and so it is Black History Month, and it's important to talk about these issues during Black History Month, but also throughout the year. I think it's an interesting point to remember. Sometimes we think we should commemorate certain things on that day, and we should, or that month or whatever it is. But what it should be is a reminder that that thing, that issue, whatever we're, we're talking about, is important for all days, all weeks, all months, whatever it is, not just that particular one. But unfortunately, sometimes it's used as, okay, well, we have a International Women's Day, so that means we're doing that for women. We have uh, Black History Month, so we're taking care of that. But it should be a reminder of the significance of whatever that issue is. And so I know I'm very fortunate to have people that live in, uh, that listen in other countries as well. Um, although racism is not a uniquely American thing. But here in the United States, we definitely have issues related to race. And many people like to think that we're living in a post-racial America. You maybe have heard that term before, especially after we elected a black president in Barack Obama, that people like to think, well, that meant racism was over. If a black person was elected to the highest office, the highest position in the country, then how could there still be racism? Um, but that's not how we measure these things. It is wonderful that that happened. It was a great step and progress and show that, yes, progress had been made. Something that was not imaginable several decades earlier had happened. That is wonderful. But just because that happens doesn't mean racism is gone. I've also heard this when people say, okay, well, if you think it's harder for African-Americans to be successful in the United States, how do you explain Oprah? And uh, in a way, that is the explanation that there are so few people like that and they can become famous or become successful in ways that are different from the opportunities that might be available to someone else that shows that it's actually not equal. So we're not saying no one could ever make it. We're saying that things are not equal in this country, as in you don't have equal opportunities. You can run a race and say, okay, I have to run 110 meters and you have to run 100 meters. I might still beat you sometimes, or I might still beat some people, or if some people have that disadvantage, they might overcome it. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a disadvantage and it doesn't mean we shouldn't do something about it. And related to this uh, topic, um, people like to accept the status quo because we don't like to think something is wrong because first we have to accept we might be part of something wrong and that doesn't feel good. And if we acknowledge that something is wrong, we have to do something about it. So people tend to have something we can call uh, they have a need for a just world, that we're living in a fair world. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. So if someone was a victim of a crime, well, they probably shouldn't have been there. Or they did something, not maybe they were just an innocent victim. Or if certain groups don't have the same advantages, maybe it's something about them or something they're doing 
Or the last thing that you sometimes will hear is, well, you know what? Life is not fair. You know what? This happens that life just isn't fair and we have to accept that. And I, I agree with that. Life is not fair. Things happen. There is some luck in this world. The things that are out of our control sometimes go in your favor. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes big things can not go in your favor. And sometimes big things might go in your favor. That's very true. But that's the stuff that is out of our control. And when we live in a world, we actually should look at, yes, life is not fair. And what we should strive to do is actually to make life as fair as we can. To make the world as just as we can. To bring about the most justice. So if there is an inequality... We don't just say, yeah, well, life's not fair. That's how it goes. We say, no, that there's an inequality. Let's make it more fair. Let's make it better. And it's very easy to be in the group that has and is in the privileged position and think, well, you know, life is not fair. That's just how it is. Some things are just that way. But rarely if we put ourselves in other people's shoes, the ones who are disadvantaged, will we have felt the same way. People might say, you know, life is not fair, you know, that's just the way it is. But I'm sure even if that person went to a restaurant and they didn't bring them all of their food and still charge them for all of their food, they wouldn't just say, oh, you know what, life is life is, isn't fair. Life's not always going to be fair. That's okay. They would say, no, this is not okay. You charged me too much. Give me some money back. Do something. Let's figure it out and make it fair. So even in something small like that, we wouldn't accept it. But all of a sudden when we have huge issues uh, of racism or certain groups are being treated more poorly in certain ways or given the same opportunities in, in a lot of different ways, we now are saying life just isn't fair and let's accept it. That's, that's not okay. And we can't accept that and accept that mindset. It's understandable to not want to face things at times or to prefer not to face them. It's much easier to do so. And this is why when groups are protesting, usually people get annoyed. It's interesting, just last month, a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day, and when it's a few decades later, everyone thinks the protests are great and doing civil disobedience and walk-in, uh, sit-ins and different things that create a little bit of a disturbance. It was so great that those people did it. They were so brave. But when it's happening in our time and we're the ones that are inconvenienced, we're very quickly annoyed and don't want to put up with that inconvenience. But not that everyone that ever protests is right. But if someone is inconveniencing you, it could be good to pay attention because it's possible what they're bringing to your attention is something much bigger than what you're experiencing. So you're getting inconvenienced a little bit, maybe because they're trying to make you aware of some huge injustice that they're experiencing that actually is much bigger than what you are feeling in that moment. And that's worth looking at. So if someone is protesting, yes, it's, you know, you're driving and it makes the traffic worse. We might get frustrated, annoyed, and upset, and that's understandable. I would feel that way too. Uh, but it can be good to become aware of well, what is it that they're not happy about, not okay with. You won't always agree with it, but maybe you'll understand it a little bit better. But we should strive to give everyone the best and equal opportunities. Um, we say equal opportunities here in the United States, but we know it's not reflected in what people actually experience. We can say something, but the experience of individuals can be quite different. So um, the book I'm going to read this week, So You Want to Talk About Race, uh, is in some ways related to this topic, or definitely is related, but I don't know if it's going to get into these types of topics and issues related to it, but looking forward to reading that this week 
and talking about it. And we have to talk about these issues. So looking forward to reading So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijioma Oluo uh, for next week's show. Um, but that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Farhuda here in the studio with me tonight. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. Have a wonderful night.